Chris Campbell with the Food Institute, and welcome back to another edition of the Food Institute podcast. This week, we welcome Professor Dan Hooker of Cornell University back to the show, alongside his student Aaron, and we'll be discussing some of the more interesting findings from our 2022 Emerging Food Leader Survey. You may remember last year that we asked about 60 graduating students in Dan's classes from Cornell to give us insight into what the next generation of food industry leaders is focusing on, and you may be surprised with some of the results. But before we get started, I wanted to remind you all about the Food Institute's newest newsletter, the FI Retail 360. If you are a food manufacturer, retailer, or distributor, make sure to sign up for this weekly newsletter to stay up to date with the latest news and trends. You can find a link to the sign-up sheet in the description of this episode. So, with that all out of the way, let's welcome our guests to the show. And Dan, I was hoping you could reintroduce yourself to our audience who may have missed last year's episode. Sure. Hey, Chris. Good to um, talk to you again. Uh, my name is Dan Hooker, and I am returning to Cornell after 30 years working in the food industry, really in all areas from supply chain, branding, marketing, product development, private brands, um, and e-commerce. And Currently, um, I'm one of the faculty members in Cornell Dyson School, and I teach a class called the Dynamics of the Food Industry and Consumer Packaged Goods, as well as Supply Chain Strategy. It's great to join you again today, Chris. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate that. And I'd also like to give Erin an opportunity to introduce herself, too. Sure. So I'm Erin. I am currently a student at Cornell. I'm a senior majoring in food science, and I have a lot of experience and interest within the food industry. Um, when I first came to Cornell, I started off doing a lot of research in like food microbiology and fermentations. Um, and then I started to get a little bit more into like business and marketing and took some classes in like supply chain marketing. And then I was a part of like the food marketing fellows program. And we got to go around to a lot of different like companies and, and have those experiences. And then, yeah, after graduation, um, I'm going to work for PepsiCo. Well, first of all, congratulations on that. And I'm really excited for this conversation. It's one of the more interesting ones I get to have every year because it is cool to be able to see into the future a little bit by kind of picking the brains of the emerging food leaders from Cornell. For those who may not remember, basically we survey about 60 students at Cornell in their food science programs and food marketing programs, et cetera, just to get a better idea of where the future food leaders are seeing the industry moving. Um, granted, it's not the most scientific study, but like I said, it does give us a nice glimpse into uh, what could be important. And you know, one of the things that we saw last year and once again has come back would be plant-based foods. So like I said, I want to set the stage just a little bit here. Uh, we asked the students to rank the importance of plant-based foods over the next five years on a one to five scale with five representing the most important and 55.7 ranked it as a five and an additional 34.4% ranked it as a four. So for that four and five answers, that was 90.1% of the students indicating would have some level of importance, either the most importance or, you know, that second level. And those were up from 84.2% last year when we pulled uh, another cross-section of Cornell students. So I was hoping, Dan, you could open up. Do you have any idea why that number kind of increased over the last year, even though we're seeing some kind of deceleration overall in CPG for plant-based? From the student's perspective, uh, at least in my class, we talk about new product innovation. And, and one of the um, projects the students take on is to create a brand and a product. And I think... 60% of the ideas that came were plant-based products. Uh, the students are really focusing on climate change, sustainability, and I think they all, or most, 
uh, believe that plant-based foods is good for not only the environment, but for your health. So I think that's why um, we're seeing that pick up more, tick up um, year on year. And Aaron, I'd like to get your perspective as well, considering you're one of the students that answered this survey, you know, from your vantage point, you know, maybe speaking for your fellow classmates as well, what could you see about the plant-based seeing that could indicate that it's got some growing importance here? Yeah, I think there, there's a lot of reasons and I've seen it myself that there's been such a huge rise in um, plant-based diets, plant-based foods. I think the major reason is definitely health concerns. Like there's been a lot more um, awareness on social media and stuff about um, how like eating more plant-based and plant-based alternatives are generally better for you. But also there's been a lot of information out there on sustainability where like a few years ago, I feel like I didn't know as much about like animal products taking up a lot of like land and water and resources and I think that's another big reason why people are are making those switches like to a plant-based diet also there's the availability aspect of it like it's so much more available to get those swaps and alternatives than it was before and I think that makes people just like so much more interested if it's right at their fingertips yeah, that's one of the major things I've noticed over the last year. We've seen, you know, Tyson, um, you know, JBS, they have their own plant-based products, imprints, whatever you want to call them, their own business units that are dedicated to this. And I also think you're seeing a lot more on the private label side as well. Um, you know, I go to ShopRite over here locally, and it seems that they have their own, you know, own brand versions of plant-based items. And I think that's probably starting to tick into this a little bit as well. One of the interesting things I saw this year as well, last year when we asked what sector was going to be the most disrupted by plant-based alternatives, about half of the vote said red meat and about a quarter said dairy. It was a little bit more than a quarter then. When we take a look at it this year, dairy took the lead with about 44.3% of the vote and red meat, while not dropping too much, was trailing by 41%, which I thought was kind of interesting. So Aaron, maybe I could throw this over to you. Why do you think that dairy is growing in importance here, it would seem? Is there any kind of indicators that you saw that would indicate, you know, plant-based dairy is an opportunity for manufacturers at this point? Um, I've seen in terms of availability and products on the market that dairy is def dairy like alternatives are definitely one of the like fastest growing um, things from everything from like milk to cheese to ice cream. I've just seen the number of products on the market like explode and they're doing pretty well. I mean, if every single brand of ice cream like has their own like vegan line, I think that's, an indication of like just how fast this um, industry is going. I also think in terms of the dairy, a lot of um, people have seen like a lot of like uh, anti-dairy like movements um, and, and just like the sustainability aspect. And with so many options available, I think that's, that's why it's growing so fast in that category. And Dan, maybe you could take a look at the other side. Any reason why you could think that red meat's getting pushed down a little bit here? Is it just because popularity for dairy is rising? Or do you think there's any other kind of force that would showcase why students are starting to think that plant-based dairy is where the real opportunity is? Uh, yeah, I'd agree with, with Aaron, Aaron on everything she said. And there's also, um, you know, some of the big brands are doing a lot of marketing around dairy. So that might have um, led to the increase. And you even had on your, your podcast some of the startups like NotCo and some of the uh, the way that they're mixing technology and artificial intelligence to create um, products using plant-based ingredients, which is pretty exciting space. 
and the students are certainly aware of that that's going on. Um, I, I would say that um, red meat may be pushed down, something to do with maybe the supply chain and pricing increases. I'm not really certain why red meat is, has seen a downtick compared to dairy, but it could be the overall um, focus on you know, more vegetarian diets from the student's point of view. Yeah, and we'll talk about diets in a minute here. I do think one of the things with red meat might just be oversaturation to that point we talked about a little bit earlier. You know, even the chicken category is getting a little bit crowded when you take a look at a lot of the players. We saw Beyond Meat for the second quarter in a row here have decelerating results like we brought up at the top. So I do think part of that's playing, but to your points, I do think that a lot of it is major new players in the space from Notco to even Shabani having, you know, plant-based milks, uh, creamers, et cetera. We also saw Oatly really explode in the last year too, which might be part of that as well. But yeah. talk, go ahead, Erin. Yeah. You have something you want to oh, bring up there? Yeah. I was going to say too, like from a like food scientist perspective, from like a formulation perspective, um, in terms of dairy, there are a lot more like ingredient explorations that are feasible. Like there are so many almost natural like coconut milk, soy milk that you don't really have to try too hard to formulate oat milk, even avocado I've seen like in ice cream. Like there are a lot of interesting ingredient explorations that can be applied to dairy on the red meat side and meat alternatives. It's a little bit harder of like a formulation challenge. And I think there's there's less options out there, but with dairy, there being like a new option all the time, like it keeps the category growing and it keeps like the food scientists able to like innovate and use new ingredients where I think that's where some of the meat stagnation comes from. I was just saying, and it keeps it in the news cycle, all the new product introductions that are coming out in the dairy category, the dairy case uh, keeps it in the news cycle. And so it keeps it top of mind for everyone as well. And like I said earlier, we are going to talk a little bit about diet here. So I want to bring up another stat from the survey. So we found 62.3% uh, of respondents when asked what the biggest diet would be over the next five years, they went with vegan and vegetarian. And although it was down from the 71.4% last year, it was still the largest segment and that was by far. So I was going to ask, what do you think is driving this interest? I know we already touched on sustain sustainability and health, and I'm assuming that's where we're going. But, you know, Aaron, is there anything else or any other points you'd like to bring up about those two things that kind of explain the popularity of this diet? Yeah, I agree with those driving forces, but um, I think awareness and availability are really important factors, too. Um, like a few years ago in restaurants, like if you were vegan or vegetarian, you go out like your options are pretty limited. Like I've seen in terms of menus, like there are so many more options now for people who don't want to eat meat or they don't want to eat dairy, etc. Like any of those alternatives, like there are so many more um, options out there in terms of eating out and in the grocery stores and retail. Like I think availability is like a huge driving factor as people as like companies innovate these new products i could not agree more i actually took the plunge i became a vegetarian i could say again uh in january this year and in prior stints that i had tried you know that was one of the major things i found especially in food service you know if you were in the grocery store you could make it work but going out for any kind of occasion was difficult and now you're finding at a lot of places you know, maybe that token one or two entrants into the menu that were plant-based in some way, vegan or vegetarian. Now you're seeing like two to three more times uh, options and also a lot of like, you know, um, trade-ins or trade-outs, you know, you could substitute in a plant-based option as well. So at least personally, anecdotally, I am definitely finding that to be the case 
Um, Dan, any other insight you could have on the popularity of vegan vegetarian diets here? Yeah, I, I think maybe with everyone being home during the pandemic, focusing on their own health and wellness and probably doing a lot of research into how diet plays a role in your overall well-being. And there's plenty of research articles, paper, social media posts talking about the switch to a more vegetarian diet could be better for your health overall. Um, you know, you, you can even look at some of the, the local chains like here in, in Ithaca or local Wegmans, they've been talking about eating more veggies for years and years and years and been way out ahead of the, the curve. And, you know, I have a son that's been a vegetarian now for four years. And, um, you know, so we've always been focused on looking for alternatives. And now to Aaron's point, we went to Chipotle the other day and I didn't realize they offer a tofu um, is one of their protein additives for their burritos and tacos. So there's a lot more availability out there for vegetarian options that we didn't have in the last couple of years. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you had a chance to get it, but the soy chorizo they did, I think it was a limited run earlier this year was pretty good. So just was it? that out there. Yeah. I was actually very surprised. Was not expecting it to be uh, as close to regular chorizo as it was. So give Chipotle a little plug here. They did a good job <laughs> with that one. Yeah. Um, I'd like to switch the topic a little bit here. So one of the things we did add two questions this year to the survey, uh, and we asked the students how they thought uh, inflation and the labor market would impact things over the next five uh, years. And more than half of those surveyed for both, you know, we had 55.7% for inflation and 54.1% for labor saying it was going to be incredibly important uh, over the next, you know, five years. So Dan, I'm hoping you can give us a little bit of your insight here. You know, what do you think this is going to mean for the food industry in the coming years? You know, it seems to me that the students that are about to enter the workforce expect this to be, you know, not a transitory effect as the Fed has sometimes called inflation here. You know, it seems like it might be a little bit more systemic. So I'm hoping you can give us a little insight on that. So that's a tough one. And I say that because, and I'd be curious to hear what Aaron has to say as well, but it seems to me that the graduates from college today, at least the graduates from Cornell University have so many opportunities ahead of them. Um, and they, I shouldn't say all, most have multiple job offers. Um, and I'm not sure that they're really thinking inflation today, although they are definitely concerned about it. Um, many don't drive cars yet, but when they get out into the workforce where they will, they probably realize that you know, things like gas prices and food prices um, are going to go up and will impact their everyday lives. And I'm sure there's some influences from their families. But, uh, you know, I, I, there's probably not a class, at least in the, the world that I'm in, in applied economics and management, where we don't talk about the supply chain disruptions and how everything's connected and it's all leading to inflation and rising prices. So it's certainly top of mind, and that's probably why it came up higher on the survey this year than last year. And Aaron, any insight into that? Yeah, I think on the inflation side, um, I, I mean, I've seen myself in every way, like gas prices are one of the most like visible price out of anything. And that's been skyrocketing. And I think of like what that means in terms of the food industry is the pricing and like for consumers is going to become like a little bit more hyper aware. 
I mean, we did a like exercise one time in Dan's class of like knowing the price of like common food items. And like, it's well known that consumers like don't really know the price of items well. But I think this might be a little bit of a shift for the food industry, especially as like food prices and everything skyrockets that people become like more hyper aware of their budgets and what everything costs. And I think that impacts like food companies too, as they're deciding what to price their foods and like to do increases because they still need to make money. But I think consumers are going to be a little bit more aware of pricing um, in this new time of like huge inflation. Chris, to add a little, put a plug in for, um, it seems to be one of our favorite retailers here in Ithaca, Trader Joe's. Uh, you know, you go shopping there and you might normally take out three bags of groceries for $100 and now it's only two. And I know Trader Joe's generally keeps their prices pretty low, but I think the students and in, in the everyday consumers are going to see that their 100 bucks doesn't go as far as it used to and they probably need to plan out a lot better. So uh retailers are feeling the pinch they're going to have to take prices up or they're going to have to downsize their products to um you know offer all that they um, can to meet the needs of the shopper so that's going to be a natural thing that will happen here in the next probably year to two yeah i i definitely agree with that and it seems like it's the type of effect where maybe right now we're not seeing a huge like problem and maybe people are not adjusting their budgets yet but it's definitely something that like the longer it goes on like people are going to realize like my hundred dollars is like not going very far so like i need to make adjustments and i think there's this massive pendulum shift too you know when we were asking these questions last year we were still very much you know coming out of the vaccination period and people wondering if we were going to reopen and before that a year there, it was people were just buying as many groceries as they could and stockpiling, definitely not taking a look at the, uh, you know, the price tag as much. And they had additional discretionary spending because they weren't doing anything. So to see this giant shift from, you know, basically buying as much as I can get to now people, I believe, are starting to get into that. You know, I think demand is starting to evaporate a little bit because of these prices. People are definitely getting a little bit more concerned about those prices. And to your point, you know, they very much notice. We talk about it on the Food Institute morning meeting pretty often. You know, I went to the food store and I paid a hundred dollars and I couldn't believe how little I was getting. It felt like. Right. So I think the consumer aspect is definitely growing there. And Dan, you talked a little bit about what food industry leaders could do to contend with these headwinds. One of the striking things I heard earlier this year from a lot of food executives is, you know, if you're going to raise your prices, now is the time. Time, you're going to get a little bit of forgiveness, but I think that forgiveness period is starting to lapse a little bit. And even though these companies may not really have much of a choice to increase prices, I do think that consumer sentiment is starting to shift a little bit. So I'm just wondering any ideas about what a food industry leader could do to contend with these headwinds beyond just, you know, either shrinking a product size, increasing prices or anything kind of outside of the box that they might be able to do? Uh, wow. Um, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think the consumers are looking at gas prices on the corner and they're, you know, $2 more per gallon. You have to drive to work or you have to take your children to school or whatever. And that's taking from those dollars to spend um, on food or consumables. Uh, what can a retailer do um, to mitigate that? You know, I think we're getting to a point where consumers are starting or they already have, or they will shop around They'll move from store to store based on the overall price perception and how far their, their hundred dollars or whatever their food budget might be will go. And you'll see, you know, stores like Aldi and Trader Joe's and, and Walmart, even targets, um, put some, um, 
emphasis on lower price. So you'll see a shift to those kind of lower priced retailers. Um, I imagine there's some loyalty based programs that retailers can do to give consumers some benefits in other areas by remaining loyal. Um, but I'm not sure that there's a point where inflation is just impacting everything across the board that ultimately retailers are going to have to take their prices up. So are the CPGs. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. One of the things we had today and today in food, we had a report from the New York Times, but you know, as inflation jolts grocery prices, shoppers are now store hopping, cutting back on expensive items and using more coupons. So I think that kind of ties into the loyalty aspect you brought up, you know, probably getting a coupon through that loyalty program. But the store hopping part to me is interesting. People going to different retailers, depending on what their specialty is, whether it's perimeter, interior prices, et cetera. So that was something new that I had seen kind of backs up that claim, I think. Erin, uh, do you have any ideas there? Um, yeah, this is really tough because I think like prices are just so visibly increasing on all ends. Like I was in Aldi the other day and like you can see the stickers where like the old price was and then the new price that's like easily a dollar more. So it's tough for everyone. And I think especially if people are shopping around like to get the best price in those certain categories like I think an approach that retailers could take is more that like Aldi Walmart approach having like less decorations less frills in the stores especially if people are shopping around like finding ways to cut the budget in like maybe not putting as like expansive of like lighting in the stores and upgrading things like especially if people are are going to shop around in that way but it really does affect like every piece of the supply chain like consumers just see that end like visible price but it's it's backing up like three levels to the manufacturer and the wholesaler and everything so it is like a really a really tough point to like balance that loyalty and like keeping your safety stock there so that like if you're out of something you're not going to have that loyalty either but yeah i think it's a really a really hard time in the food industry right now to balance it all hey chris i i would um if you haven't already take a look at heb down in texas on how they respond to rising inflation um historically they've always provided you know a value because their 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 consumer needs that and I think you'll see retailers like HEB really respond to the um, inflation and, and see some um, ideas on how to mitigate that coming out of that retailer. And I definitely will, because it's interesting, you know, for most of my time covering the food industry retail specifically, it's been a lot of price competition. I haven't really seen prices going up all that much. For the most part, it was how can these retailers figure out a way, I would say like over the last 10 years for the most part, trying to figure out a way to get the prices down. And now prices are going up everywhere. So if there is a uh, study, case study we can do with HEB down there, and if anyone from HEB is listening, let me know, because we could definitely like to, to talk to you about that one for sure. Um, I'd like to switch gears once again here. One of the things we noticed in this year um, compared to last year, we asked what kind of social uh, you know, causes would be the most important for the food industry moving forward. Uh, last year, it was 47.6% of the vote saying that it was environmental causes. And this year, it was a whopping 95.1% of the vote. So clearly, environmental causes are front of mind for a lot of students right now. So I was going to ask Aaron, you know, 
we've talked about sustainability a little bit, but, you know, as far as the perception goes, what do you think is really driving this new, you know, maybe it's not really new, maybe it's renewed interest in the space, but what do you think is really causing sustainability to be so front of mind for you and, you know, a lot of your cohort? Yeah, I think like, um, from the perspective of young people, I think this like directly ties into the plant-based movement and especially through social media, like people I think have become a lot more aware of like things that go into food production, water, land, everything. And if like, if we can use our dollars to put that towards a more sustainable future, it seems like food is a really good option for that. So like we desire food companies to like be more sustainable and it like drives people to care more about sustainability through this big like plant-based diet but on the other side I think there's been a big shift in like packaging too in single-use items and I think I've become a lot more aware too of how much like plastic and single-use plastic there is in food and um, seeing all the waste and on social media and stuff I think that also leads people to like want to adopt a more sustainable future and like have have less plastic and waste like in our consumption. Aaron, question back to you. Climate change also is top of mind, I'd imagine too, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely a big issue and ties into sustainability. Yeah, I was going to bring up, I was looking it up real quick on the topic of food packaging. This morning I saw a report that Heinz Ketchup is going to try a 100% sustainably sourced wood pulp bottle. So it's going to be the first sauce brand to test such packaging. Uh, I don't know if that's going to work or not, but just the idea here that we're even exploring packaging like that. And over the weekend, my girlfriend picked up, I believe it was Colgate with a first I've ever seen, you know, labeling on the package for the toothpaste saying this is fully recyclable. So I think that kind of backs up some of Aaron's points on the, you know, packaging aspect. I'm wondering, Dan, taking a look at it, do you see, you know, from your vantage point, I know you've taught there for a while. Is this something that's a trend that's been happening for a while? Do you see it really accelerating in the current day? What's your vantage point on just sustainability in the food industry overall? Uh, well, from, from a packaging standpoint, I think we talk a lot about um, wanting to have more sustainable packaging, more recycling, more compostable packaging. Although I think if you were to ask the students if they would pay more for um packaging that was sustainable or compostable or recyclable, I think you would get yes, but only to a certain point. So um, I don't think we as consumers are at a point where we're going to pay more for packaging that's more sustainable. And I'm really kind of giving you my opinion a little bit here because, uh, you know, with inflation and rising prices and budgets being stretched, the average family, you know, they're looking for ways to cut costs and you know, until we're willing to pay more for more recyclable packaging, I think it's going to um, have a, it's going to be a long time before it really comes online. Although you have to applaud the efforts on some of the companies like, you know, Colgate that have invested in, in packaging that's more sustainable or better for the environment. Um, if we take learnings from Europe, you know, they're way ahead of us in this area. And hopefully that that will translate over to us here in the States. But I just, we're, we're sort of in this, period where it's hard to do now with everything going up in cost. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that sentiment. I think one of the places that people have the most agency for change, at least in the United States, is their food purchases. 
because number one, you know, we have to do it. You know, everyone needs to eat. Uh, but number two, I think it's one of the places where it really does exact that change. And I would say before the pandemic, I think a lot of people were starting to put, you know, their money where their mouth was and starting to buy those products. But to your point, Dan, inflation and also the pandemic in general, it's just shifted a lot of consumption patterns and purchasing patterns overall. But yeah, with the inflationary pressures, I think you're going to see a little bit more trade down, you know, maybe people that were buying organic, switching into more conventionally, you know, produced items and to your point on packaging, probably going to see a little bit of a downturn there as well. Yeah. And, and I, I also, yeah, I also, and it'd be interesting to hear Aaron's point of view on this, but, you know, pandemic happened and, you know, the great acceleration of e-commerce and shopping online, more and more students are starting to question, you know, the amount of energy and miles that it takes to deliver packages as opposed to, you know, going to a store and picking them up. And they're starting to think about, um, although it's still convenient and easy, it does have an impact on the amount of packaging that's required to get something delivered. So there's, I think there's a lot more thinking around other areas that can help, um, make a better environment and, and, and reduce the risk of climate change that students are focusing on too. What would you say about that, Erin? Yeah, I think packaging definitely like demonstrates this kind of more broad focus on sustainability because yeah, before the pandemic, there was a lot more focus on like the food itself, like organic versus conventional, um, making plant-based swaps, like more simple things. But I think yeah, in terms of like sustainability for students, especially, it's become more broad to like the packaging of the food and even broader, like the transport of the food. I've seen so many more people using like reusable bags um, at the grocery store, using tote bags to to carry things. Um, there's also been a growth of like getting your food at the farmer's market and more local. So I think this has made um, us more hyper aware of more than just the food we're consuming ourselves, but like the modes of transport and the packaging that goes with all those like higher level steps. And yeah, I think people have been moving towards being more aware of that and, and trying to make those swaps too. Yeah, it reminds me of two terms. I think a local bore, which you don't really see too much anymore, and then I guess climatarian as well. So it's it is moving beyond just what's on the plate, but also how it gets there. But I do agree that the environmental aspects are definitely growing. And I know Dan brought up a little bit about delivery, and that was a good segue because we do have a question on that. Um, I kind of predicted food delivery would become less important after the pandemic. I figured there would be this great reopening. I figured that people would want to go into, well, I guess they got to go to supermarkets, but maybe they weren't really spending leisure time there, you know, but I think people really want to have that personal connection with their food. And to your point, Aaron, go into farmers markets, et cetera. They want to get their hands on the product and be a part of the selection process. So when I saw the results here, I was kind of surprised because it jumped up from 50.8% last year to 55.7% of respondents saying it's going to be very important over the next five years. So I was just wondering, you know, I guess we could start with Aaron here. What What's the thought process behind this? What do you think and how do you take food delivery? Do you think it's going to be an important, you know, staying power kind of part of the industry? Is it something that's a little bit more transitory? How do you see delivery? Yeah, this is a really interesting space, actually, that's like emerged from the pandemic. And I feel like it was growing super slowly. Like, I think Walmart did have a like drive up service before the pandemic. But my opinion, especially from like a busy student schedule perspective, is that I don't really think that delivery is going to have any problem like staying relevant in the food industry. 
I think people have found like these new avenues to get their groceries in a busy, hectic schedule, especially for those like young working professionals, students, moms with young kids that like don't always have time to get their groceries, but like want to have all their healthy alternatives that being able to like have grocery delivery or grocery pickup. Like I think those options are actually really valuable to people with those lifestyles and um, I don't think that that's going to slow down. And and also the whole um, meal box delivery thing as like a new way to get food. I've seen so many more of those popping up. So I think those are, are like here to stay is, is my personal opinion. <laughs> yeah, I think Chris, convenience trumps um, probably view on climate change and sustainability when it comes to busy families or, um, you know, people that need to get things delivered if they're still worried about the pandemic. And I would add what Aaron's saying, you know, services like subscription-based services are really, really convenient. And once you are signed up for one and happy with it, you almost don't need to change. So they have you locked in um, once you commit to some of these subscription-based services for certain products that you might use on a recurring basis that are really easy to sort of predict usage of. Yeah, I think it kind of battles fatigue as well. You know, people kind of stuck at home cooking a lot of things. It gives you an opportunity to learn something new, especially if you're at a point where you feel like you've cooked everything. So I'm kind of in the same uh, mindset. I'm bullish on where meal kits will be going. And I do think that there is a opportunity for that meal kit that comes in with like zero packaging, et cetera, because that's the one thing I notice about meal kits. The, the packaging inside of them, it's it's pretty insane how much plastic, et cetera, is in there. So to your point, Dan, I do think convenience trumps it, but I do think that there's an opportunity here for a meal kit to come out saying, hey, we're the maybe not zero waste, but close to zero waste option for you. And I think that, you know, when families given the opportunity to maintain that convenience, they can definitely also want to make a environmentally sound decision as well. Yeah. And, but I do think though that people in general, you know, we want to be together food brings us together and even, you know, going shopping together um, as something that we view as connectivity, connection with our family members and our friends. So I do think people want to get back into stores, um, especially when it comes to, you know, shopping for fresh foods and exploring what um, your local retailer might offer. Um, And I'm, you know, speaking for myself to some degree, but um, you know, being in the food industry, I love to go down the aisles and, and, and wander through the fresh departments, especially in a you know, great retailer, some of the great retailers that we have here. But I see that um, people still, I think, we're going to want to get back into the stores. But you can get your everyday stuff delivered. You might as well. Yeah, I really see it's probably going to be a hybrid model. I don't think any consumer is going to say, you know, I'm hardline delivery only or hardline in-store. I imagine a world where, you know, you're going to get your dinner delivered uh, through DoorDash. You know, you're going to go on Walmart or Amazon and get a ton of CPG products that can get delivered to your house. And then to your point, Dan, going into the store and maybe picking up, you know, produce from the farmer's market, going to a local butcher, even, you know, like you said, a retailer as well to get those items uh, and getting those fresh items with your own hands so that you don't have to worry about another person being the one that's picking that item for you. So I am somewhat bullish on the delivery stuff now. Like I said, originally, I thought it would tail off, but I do think we're starting to see that convenience part uh, really coming in and maybe they will use it less, but they won't abandon it entirely. I'd be curious if you were to take a survey of 
of college, recent college graduates that have been out in the workforce for, I don't know, one to three years, how many meals they actually eat out. Um, you know, and, and are they cooking more at home and using meal kits or are they ordering from their local Whole Foods and bringing food in and eating it at home or are they still going out? Um, I'd be curious to hear what, you know, what that statistic is. Yeah, it would be an interesting thing to be able to track, you know, just kind of seeing how the pandemic shifted everybody's ability to make their own lunches, et cetera, right? So I think even just getting the general population at this point as people start going back into uh, office, kind of seeing what they're doing for their lunches, it'd be kind of interesting to see, you know, how that consumer behavior has changed. Yeah. Um, I want to just say, you know, we're at the end here, so I want to move past the survey and give you both an opportunity just to kind of see if there's anything we missed in this survey. We could start with you, Aaron. Is there any kind of trend that you think might become big over the next five years, something that maybe you and your classmates have talked about that we haven't really covered on that survey? Yeah, I think um, being in the food industry and seeing a lot with like beverages um, in um, this industry, I think a lot of new innovations um, are going to be around like sustainability and packaging like we talked about specifically in beverages i've seen a lot of like uh they call them like beyond the bottle innovation so like ways we can eliminate plastic and with supply chain shipping water so making drinks into like a powder a tablet um other forms of that and or like gels i'm thinking especially in like the um performance industry but Way, I think like there will be a big trend of companies to kind of like innovate around the crisis. So shortages, supply chain issues, finding ways to like not ship expensive ingredients um, and finding ways to like reduce costs, but still keep consumers like interested through these like new forms of like the common products that they see. Um, the other side that I've seen growing like so much in advertising, packaging products is those like functional ingredient inclusions and I think this is definitely like come out of the pandemic and like it started with immunity but I see it in almost like every beverage and now some like solid food products too like supports immunity supports brain health like all of these like ingredients that have functions I think are going to be like very trendy in the food industry. That's really interesting. Uh, this episode isn't out yet, but I did a recent episode talking about plant-based nutrition, et cetera. And one of the questions I had as a fledgling vegetarian over here is like, where's the plant-based burger with B12 in it? You know, where are these products that fill in those functional gaps? And I think you're right there that we're definitely seeing an increase in the functional aspects uh, and especially, you know, the beverage market itself, because I think overall, a lot of beverage companies have made products that I'm going to be very careful with how I phrase this, but maybe not the most nutritious, right? And a lot of the American beverage market is kind of focused on that. So to see products coming out that do try to, you know, address a, you know, nutritional need or even just add, you know, to your point, added nutrition, uh, definitely a big market, I believe, that's kind of growing. It's kind of nascent here in the U.S., but definitely something that could become bigger. And Dan, I'll ask you the same question. Anything you're seeing, anything on your radar over the next five years that might be big? Um, I'll add on to the beverage um, conversation around no alcohol or low alcohol beverages really gaining popularity and growing. And there's a lot new or more products that are really tasty coming to market. And I think that trend's going to continue. And you touched on it in the very beginning. Another area is private brands or private label. I think retailers now, once again, have a real opportunity to um, market 
whatever they're investing or talking about in terms of sustainability, packaging, climate change, innovation, food as medicine, I think private label has a really great opportunity to grow rapidly um, during this time of disruption and, and high cost environment. So unfortunately, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. I know we could go on forever, but I really want to thank both Dan Hooker and Aaron for joining the show today. Really some interesting insights. Just want to remind everybody to also take a look in the description of this episode once again to sign up for FI Retail 360, releasing every Wednesday. And don't forget to subscribe, like, and share. We really still rely on you guys to help us get the word out and helping the Food Institute podcast to grow. So like I said, that's going to do it for us this time. This is Chris Campbell signing off. (music) 